Hello all, I am Jesse Reed. For the World Ethnography Project, I chose to read Tragic Spirits, Shamanism, Memory, and Gender in Contemporary Mongolia by Bonduai Bunyandelgar. The University of Chicago published this book in 2013. On Amazon, it costs around $33 for a paperback copy. Bunyandelgar's writing seeks to analyze the role of shamanic practice in post-communist northern Mongolian Buryat society, primarily in the region surrounding Bayan rule. Over the course of this podcast, I will cover a bit about the author's biography and a research question, a chapter summary, a passage from the book, and finishing with my impressions and experiences while reading. Mein Duhai Buyandelger is a professor of anthropology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and is at work on her second book, A Thousand Steps to Parliament, Women Running for Election in Post-Socialist Neoliberalizing Mongolia, considering her first book in the place of women in their modernizing society. This emphasis has much to do with her own origins as she was born in Mongolia primary, prior to her immigration to the United States. She had earned her undergraduate's degree at the National University of Mongolia and would go on to earn her doctorate in anthropology from Harvard. However, it was her origins in Mongolia that led her to her interest in the cultural climate and history of her home nation. Her focus was predominantly centered on the effects of the political climate on the rights of women. This led her to discover many of the processes and practices used by the communist government until the 1990s that exerted power over the nation's populace. In Tragic Spirits, Bulian Delger chose to focus on a specific community of Mongolia, the Mongolian Buryats, who reside in the northeastern region of the country. They have a long and complicated relationship based in migration and persecution with both Mongolia and their ancestral homelands of Russia, where a subset of their people has remained. Delger concentrates on the relationship of shamanic practices within the context of communism. She asks at the core of her research, how have the Mongolian Buryat population's shamanic practices been adapted to the post-socialist state and the revitalization of pre-communist traditions, as these changes connect to the practices of forgetting, remembering, and the place of gender roles among the tradition. After Delger establishes how her ethnography will proceed and introduces some of her participants, she moves on to demonstrate the practices and traditions contained in Buryat shamanism. She begins with an introduction into the major themes and supernatural forces, highlighting the common deities and spirits among typically family-based traditions. Possession is a concept that becomes familiar early on in her writing, as it is the undeniable proof of a spiritually inclined individual and shaman. Other cultures, like those from Croissant's 2019 article, avoided this kind of physical ta- physically taxing possession as displacement. She follows this with the social context of to the culture, where she explains that the tense relationship between the Russian and Buryats. The state pressured the Buryats to migrate and ultimately divide between the two nations suffering from persecution that would haunt the Buryat people long after they had been separated from Russia. Finally, she introduces some of the most important concepts of shamanic worship. This includes methods of worship, objects to aid in that worship, and the spirits that shamans have the closest ties to. Through the last passages of the chapter, Vian Delger represents the shamanism of modern day, highlighting the cultural overlap with Buddhism and its relationship to the communist government that will be reoccurring themes throughout this ethnography. During the 1930s, the struggles of religious practitioners were at their most extreme. The communist government persecuted shamans and lamas alike, which led to a decline in those who practiced religion. During that time, all ceremonies were done in secret. Dramatic social change began through state violence in the 1920s and 1930s, but it was the new habits of Soviet life in the post-World War II period that left little space in everyday life for Buryat language use and religious practices. 
Since restrictions on religious practice were abandoned after the fall of communism in the 1990s, the shamans have come, become a much larger part of the public sphere and returned to their cultural beliefs, though altered, to a position of influence and authority. Pujada, Graeber, and Stefan, 2015. Shamans couldn't travel as widely, and so they couldn't gather the histories that they needed for their practice and couldn't gain customers through publicity. The governments weakened them and put their existence under threat. This was much the same across the communist world. In Albania, the state's failure to erase religious practices and beliefs among the population, together with the resurfacing of religious com communities after 1990, have maintained that the idea that religion can lead to division. De Rapper, 2008. Distrust of religious practice, though increasingly appealing to those suddenly uncertain of their future, became another excuse to question the trust placed in others. Just like any religious practice, the various religions and their practitioners should be considered as embedded in local configurations and should be first understood in their local context. De Rapper, 2008. Buryat identity has undergone drastic alterations over centuries of changing leadership and alliance. As such, their faith has been tweaked to accommodate those changes. The fifth chapter dives into the balancing act between gender inequality and the authority granted by shamanism. Women have found it difficult in contemporary times to make a living from their shamanic professions. As Buryat society clung to the typical patriarchal organization families, women were unable to gain enough independence to fully profit off of their practices. Successful shamans female shamans often came from egalitarian family dynamics, with the workload more evenly split between spouses. While under communism, women were able to support themselves with their careers in town and were less dependent on their husbands, it was in line with the communist practices of the era, where a forced liberation of patriarchal and capitalist exploitation in the home and simultaneous forced engagement on the labor market were desired, needed, and expected. Marinescu, 2017. They found more freedom and greater independence with communism's great emphasis on equal rights, though misogynistic practices simply continued in less apparent ways. In any case, what few rights they had earned were lost after communism's collapse. Those who persisted in traditional nomadic way of life often were able to maintain a less regulated identity with more resources to spend on religious practice. The government's preferred by the family structure to remain in place, and the motherhood. The government preferred the family structure to remain in place, and motherhood became a method of control used by husbands. Female divorcees often faced stigmatization and far fewer resources, though their only other option was to exist in a restrictive or abusive household. Despite communism's dreams of equality among the genders, these expectations fell short. In fact, the roles of women during and after communism were remarkably similar in other nations, such as Romania. Marinescu went so far as to claim that if women were represented in both their productive and reproductive roles as laborer and mother of the nation in communism, the same representation seemed to prevail in post-communism, although these roles now included a more clearly gendered persona. 2017. Shamanism was a practice that inherently required increased independence and had the potential to provide a way out from bad marriages. Chapter 6 begins with shamans' powers and the prestige within the community. Along with their title, shamans are well recognized for their talents and persuasion and their ability to construct stories convincing to their audiences. It is this persuasiveness that results in their social power, much like the leaders of any religion. 
In Trinidad, for example, pastors are the ones to write narratives of people being of people and prevent harm from coming to them because of the anger of supernatural beings. Crossan explains that pastors would seal the individual subject off from the demonic forces that roamed the earth. In a case where the possession of girls became common, though Christian pastors are but one religious influence on Trinidad's populace. In this space, Arisha healers play the role of communicators between humans and spirits. For them, it was important to ask the questions in the world of the spirit, because they might have fixable troubles. Croissant, 2019. Spirits are beings capable of being reasoned with within this culture, just like in shamanism. Spirits confront humans with their desires and needs, and these intermediaries, shamans, pastors, and healers are the ones to offer the means of satisfying them. Nevertheless, shamans are not the only individuals with influence over the religious practice in Buryat communities. Buyan Delgar turned to the clients and non-shaman participants to explore the reciprocation of the practice through most of the community. Participants might hire multiple shamans or Buddhist lamas and discuss what they learned with other community members to figure out the legitimacy of various shamans. Shamans encourage the audience involvement as well. Some call attention to certain audience members or compromise the authority of competitors amid their ritual processions. Despite her husband's violent restrictions, Chimeng ex- expanded her travels beyond the district of Bayanul and went to Russia and Buryatia, where she acquired numerous disciples and clients. In the early to mid-1990s, there were only a few shamans among the Buryats in either Mongolia or Russia. The demand was high, although that she had completed only three shinars of the seven required. Chimeng had become one of the most renowned and financially successful shamans of that period. More, Chimeng's travels to Russia coincided with a period of nationwide trading. Upon the collapse of socialism, both the former Soviet Union and the Mongolian state withdrew their respective monopolies over the importing and exporting of goods and services. The two nations' populations had to fend for themselves, that also meant that the opportunities opened up for the individuals and private businesses to fill functions previously performed by the state. Chimeng used these social changes to her own advantage and found profitable outlets. At the time, Mongolia was suffering from a shortage of wheat flour. She took the payments and gifts she had accumulated from her shamanic practices and started importing flour from Russia into Mongolia, where she was still practicing shamanism. She brought a truckload of flour from Russia, usually five tons, to her district of Bayandun and exchanged every bag of flour, each weighing between 80 and 100 pounds, for sheep. Within two years, Chimeng had accumulated a large number of livestock, including a camel caravan. She built a new log house and filled it with expensive carpets, furniture, and dishes. Despite these material comforts, and despite the fact that Chimeng had managed to acquire them during the time of an economic collapse, Chimeng's travels infuriated her husband. She was jealous and assumed that whenever she traveled and stayed in other people's houses, she was cheating on him. Not only that, but her frequent absences from the home meant that he no longer had anyone to serve him his meals, take care of the children, and clean the house. He also felt emasculated because he had failed to provide for the family after his job ended with the collapse of the uh, state farms. His wife, on the contrary, who had always been dependent on him, was now a successful breadwinner and enjoyed her freedom. Because his pride was hurt, he preferred to stay poor and maintain control over Chimeng. The new and unexpected gender roles and reversal of power in the household were not acceptable to him. He was still the man, and she, Chimeng, was his wife. But it was not until Chimeng's husband tried to harm her shamanic paraphernalia that Chimeng left him.
The shaman had been successful under com communism, but found herself in a difficult and abusive marriage that she couldn't stand any longer. However, once she had left, surrendering much of her earnings to her husband, she lost much of her prestige and influence. Though she had believed that she would have enough financial support from her shamanic career that she would survive. Instead, she struggled with the loss of the community's respect and slowly lost what income she had managed to keep. Her story illustrated the deep-set social beliefs that Bouillon Delgar set out to investigate. Beliefs about women, shamanism, and the post-socialist Mongolia. Chimeng was a woman practicing shamanism who was deeply affected by the culture created under communism and who ultimately failed to find success because of the intersections of these elements. When I thought up what I wanted to read for this project at the beginning of the semester, my first thought was to do something on Mongolia. In high school, I learned about some Mongolian history, but I was still curious to learn more about their recent history, about their languages and cultural groups, and about their religious practices and traditions. It was by pure luck that the, one of the book, first books that I looked at was Tragic Spirits. It was exactly what I searched for and had the added benefit of considering the context of communism. Though some of what I read was familiar, it was all put into context for me. Tragic Spirits made me consider what these people's lives were. Their identities were irrevocably shifted because of the state-mandated restrictions. I also came to realize the impreciseness of the system, where anyone, if motivated and with enough social influence, was able to ignore policies that they didn't agree with. All in all, Bion Delgar's research both satisfied my interest in Mongolian religious practice and enlightened me to the communist context that has shaped it. There is a great deal of overlap between how things are done and the social context. If Mongolia had moved to a neoliberal economy before a communist one, it is possible that the practice of shamanism would have taken a very different route. Boyan Delger's work illustrated that the intersections of various identities and social contexts in a way that allowed me to better understand how societies and their people change in various ways. After all, Buryat shamanism changed not just due to communism, but the long history of conflict within the Russian government. The rising prevalence of Buddhism in Mongolia, as well as the effects that having the status of a minority population within their country of residence had. Ethnographies such as this one teach the audience much about the different world traditions and histories. All what Boyan Delgar covered involved the historical context of the people, from their origins in Russia to the more recent realities of communism. Without texts like this one, it becomes much harder to understand both the reality that people face and their opinions of their circumstances. Just knowing the general facts often doesn't provide a good contextual look at what is really going on. This World Ethnography Project has provided the opportunity to bridge that gap. Thanks for listening, and read some ethnographies.